God, our Father, we honor you this day. We thank you and we praise you, God. Oh, Lord, you are everything to us. You are our all in all. You give us our life, our breath, and everything we have. We're grateful. We're grateful for the love that you have shown us through our Lord Jesus Christ, through his death on the cross, O Lord, through His perfect life, through His righteousness that You grant us by faith. O Lord, for His glorious resurrection and His exaltation to Your right hand, we're grateful. We thank You. And God, for all of this, we are saved. No longer condemned to die. Indeed, death has died in the death of Christ. And we thank you. Oh Lord, we pray today as we look into your word that you would help us to understand even more clearly your glorious gospel, the message of your Son, who is Jesus our Lord. Give us ears to hear and give us eyes to see, we pray. Help us to understand these mysteries. God, help us to treasure them in our hearts. We honor you and we bless you because of Jesus' precious blood. Amen. Amen. Okay. So with that, I want to remind you there's a new handout today, number 90. If you don't have a number 90, you need to grab one. I'm hoping we get to number 90. We're uh, we're going to be picking up uh, today on number 87 where we left off. But I just want to give you a brief review of the topic we've been discussing, which is the Lordship of Christ. And if you will... We've kind of been talking about the idea of Christ's Lordship, and we've been talking about the idea of Jesus being our Master and our Lord, and Him having high and holy commandments that are to be fully obeyed. And if you will, we talked about the Lordship controversy, which there has been some controversy ongoing since the uh, middle of the 20th century among the evangelical church about the Lordship of Christ and whether or not it's absolutely necessary for one to receive Christ as Lord in order to be saved. And of course we know that the answer is Jesus is the Savior and He's also the Lord and when you get one, you get both. Amen? Well, these who would say that salvation comes only by faith and has nothing really at all to do with our repentance or our obedience, we have seen that that emphasis leads to really a reduction of the gospel. Amen? So that one would say, well, all you need to do is believe. And although that is really true, because all you really need to do is believe, the fact of the matter is, if you have true saving faith, if you have the kind of faith that saves... It is by nature an obedient faith. Or if you will, it brings about the obedience of faith to the Lordship of Christ. Amen? Amen. And so uh, it really is something that needs to be explained in that whole controversy. It's very important that we don't just reduce the gospel down to any one of its forms. Because as we've seen many, many times, the gospel is expressed in the Bible in many different forms. Although there is only one true gospel, and the the core message of the gospel is really a simple message, it's expressed in the Bible in many various different ways. And so is saving faith. Saving faith is expressed in the Bible in many different ways, and that's what we've been looking at as we've been talking about the Lordship of, of Christ. But in regard to this controversy about whether or not one needs to to, to actually obey Christ in order to be saved? Well, the answer is, of course not. Why? Because you can't obey Christ. You do not have the power to obey Christ. In fact, 
That's why you need to be saved. Because you have disobeyed Christ. Right? And it's not on the basis of your obedience and on the basis of your merits that you have salvation. That comes by faith alone in Christ alone. Amen? However, the issue is, when one has true saving faith, obedience is a characteristic of that faith. So that when we examine our life, what we should see is a life that's being changed from our former lusts, our former dwelling in darkness and in sin, and we're being increasingly transformed into the likeness of Christ through our reverent obedience to Him as Lord. Amen? So if one possesses the kind of faith that saves, the good works are going to be evidence of that faith. The good works are going to be the fruit or the product that comes from that faith, and this is how we see it expressed in the New Testament. So, if you will, the true gospel is a call to faith as well as repentance. It's a call to faith as well as obedience. Okay? Now, it's not that the obedience is what saves us. Right? Because we all know what a desperate failure we have been. Even since the day we got saved, we've, we've sinned against God in thought, word, and deed more times than we can count on both hands and feet. Right? <clears throat> so it's not our obedience that earns us merit before God. It's the obedience of Christ that earns us merit before God. But we receive His merits through faith. And the kind of faith that receives the merits of Christ is a faith that is fully submitted to His Lordship. It's a faith that has turned its back on sin. It's a faith that now expresses its trust and its reliance on Christ through obedience to God's commandments. Amen? It doesn't mean we're never going to fail again. Right? It's simply a characteristic that we have true saving faith that obedience come from our life. So last week, we were talking about the nature of saving faith. What is the nature of the kind of faith that saves? Because we also introduced the idea that there is a kind of faith that does not save. Amen? As James points out in chapter 2. Right? Even the demons believe, he says, and shudder. So, if you, in, in that sense, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, well, like we said, that qualifies you to be a demon. Right? Because, if you have the kind of faith that saves, you won't live like a demon now, will you? Right? And there will be a vast difference between what your life looks like and the life of the wicked. Would you agree? And so, if you will, there is a kind of faith that saves, and we've been talking about the many different ways in the New Testament that that is expressed. And I just picked out a few just to kind of show us how this uh, part of the gospel the Lordship of Christ, is expressed in several different ways in the New Testament. And so I pointed those out back on page 85, there where we were talking about the nature of saving faith. And, and I showed you that even in Jesus' teaching alone, there were these many different forms or expressions of the Lordship of Christ as it relates to saving faith. And here's what they are. Jesus calls us to a master-slave relationship of lifelong perseverance and service. Jesus calls us to be born again and to be recreated by God through faith. Jesus calls us to bear fruit and produce the marks of true faith. Jesus calls us to humility, brokenness, and to deny self-reliance. Remember, I spent some time explaining the difference between relying on ourself and relying on Christ. Christ is who we rely on for justification before God. Amen? And it's that trust in Christ that produces a heart in us that wants to obey Him. Amen? And then Jesus calls us to lose our life to follow Him. Okay? And then also... Jesus calls us to love Him supremely above all other things and worship Him. Okay? These are the many different forms or expressions of true saving faith in regards to the Lordship of Christ. Okay? Are you with me? 
Okay, so then, last week we left off on 87, and we had talked about most of those expressions. And uh, the one other thing I wanted to point out was that we learned that many times in the teaching of Jesus, when he is talking to us about the nature of saving faith, he's drawing a contrast between true saving faith and false faith. He's drawing a contrast between those who are truly saved and those who are not truly saved. Because those, there's two very different kind of people in the world. There are those who have been born again by the Holy Spirit of God and who are saved, who, who, whose destiny is eternal life to live in heaven with God forever. Or should I say to live in the presence of God forever. Okay, And there are those who are not saved, who have not been born again, who will be shut out from the presence of God forever. This is clear in the New Testament. It's clear in the teaching of Jesus, as we've seen many, many times. Amen? Two kinds of people in the world. And as Jesus talks about the nature of saving faith, he points this contrast out very clearly in many different ways. And so we, we were looking at that last week, and we see that when Jesus draws these contrasts, he teaches us to discern between true faith and from false faith. Okay, He wants us to examine our life and to see whether or not we have the kind of faith that saves. And he wants us to pursue that kind of life, that kind of obedience, that kind of glory to God in our practice and in our living and in our thoughts and in our hearts. Amen? And so he's constantly drawing this analogy between true faith and false faith and He's, he's making it very personal so that now it's not just some general idea or concept about faith, but either you are a true believer or you are not a true believer. Either you are a true believer or you are a mere professor. You profess with your mouth to be a believer in Christ, but deny him with your deeds, with your actions, with your words. Amen? Jesus draws these contrasts and these distinctions in his teaching, some of which we've already seen. So we looked at, if you will, we looked at the master-slave relationship. We looked at Jesus calling us to be born again and recreated by faith. We looked at Jesus' analogy to a fruit-bearing tree or a fruit-bearing vine and to produce the fruit that comes from true faith. And we also talked about the humility and the brokenness and the denying of self-reliance that Christ calls us to. When he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his own cross and follow me. And so Jesus is, is, is calling us to deny self-reliance and instead to trust in him. And so much so, he says, that we should lose our life Lose our own hopes, our own dreams, our own aspirations to follow Christ if those dreams and aspirations are not consistent with him and his gospel. Amen? And so that we have to let go of all that we hold dear in order to follow Christ. That is, if we want to possess true saving faith. And these are the analogies that come from Jesus' teaching. And that brings us to where we are today on page 87, near the top there. This price of losing our life can occasionally cost us everything. Indeed, throughout history, many saints have given their life at the hands of violent persecutors. The gospel calls us to the kind of commitment of self-abandonment to follow Christ, even unto death. And so, if you will, Jesus calls us to be a witness. He calls us to be a professor, doesn't he? He wants us to profess faith in him. He wants us to confess him before men. He wants us to, as he says, preach the gospel to every creature unto heaven. He wants us to go into every nation and make disciples and to teach them uh, uh, to obey everything he commanded us. Amen? However, he, he also warns of denying him. In Matthew 10, verse 32 and 33, he says, Everyone therefore who shall confess me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever shall deny me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. 
And so here is a mark of true faith. What do we do? We confess him before men. I wonder how many people in your life know that you're a Christian. I wonder how many people in your life know that you're a true Christian. You with me? The kind of Christian who has denied himself and taken up his cross and lost his life to follow Christ. So that you love Christ more than you love the approval of men. And that you're not ashamed of the gospel. Nor are you ashamed of Jesus the Savior and his cross. Amen? Something to think about. How about in 2 Timothy 2, 11 and following, he says, Paul says there, it is a trustworthy statement, for if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure with him, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. You see, Christ warns that we not deny him. On the contrary, that we profess him and confess him before men. Even unto death. In Revelation 2.10, he says this to the church. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. He says to them, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. And here, Jesus clearly calling us to be faithful even unto death. Even after being thrown into prison, he tells his saints, Be faithful unto death, and I shall give you the crown of life. And again, we hear ringing in our ear the call, the gospel call of Jesus. If we're not willing to lose our life to follow him, we shall lose our own life. Amen? For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? In other words, there's nothing in the world more valuable than Christ. Amen? God help us to treasure Him in our hearts above all other things. In fact, the gospel calls us to give up everything we have in order to love Christ supremely above all other things and worship Him first. You understand? When Jesus calls us to love Him supremely above all other things, He's not saying that you must go sell everything you have and give your life to the poor and no longer live in a home or anything like that, although that is the example He lived before us. But what He does want is the allegiance of your heart to that level or that degree. Are you with me? He's calling for an allegiance of your heart that would give itself even unto death if need be, if that's what he calls us to. Amen? And many times in our life, that's going to take the form of sacrifices that we need to make to help other people. As a matter of fact, a good fruit-bearing Christian is making sacrifices all the time. Are we not? We make sacrifices of our time to minister to people. We, we, we make sacrifices of our talents and our gifts and we offer those to God in ways to try to minister the gospel to people and to the church, those whom he loves. We love the church and we serve the church and we give our life to serve the saints. Amen? We wash their feet. We cleanse them from the filth of the world by our active ministry to them. Amen? And so a Christian is always giving sacrifices. We sacrifice our treasure. We sacrifice our money to help those who need help, who need financial and monetary assistance. Amen? We sacrifice our money so that the church can grow and be blessed and, and be filled. Amen? And so there are many different ways that we're making these sacrifices. But listen, Jesus is calling the allegiance of our hearts to be with him supremely above all other things. Are you with me? And so at any point... We ought to be able to say that we live our life for Christ. He's first. He's king. He's master. He's Lord. Amen? If you will, Luke 14, 26 and following, he says this, If anyone comes to me 
and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, family, those are strong words, are they not? Let me ask you a question. Is Jesus asking you to hate your father and your mother? To hate your sister and your brother and your wife? No. What is he calling you to? He's calling you to love him more. He's calling you to an allegiance of your heart that is greater than all other things in your life, even the most treasured things in your life, like your spouse and your mother and your father and your children. And look what he says, even your own life. That's what he's calling us to. Christ is to be loved and honored supremely above all other things, even our own life. Amen? This is his gospel call, family. These are his words. How about Luke 14:33? He says, So therefore, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. In other words, you need to give up your possessions, right? They cannot possess you. Are you with me? So that if at any time the Lord asks for something that you have and wants you to give it to another, your allegiance to Christ should, should, should uh, override that. Amen? Are you with me? In other words, nothing that you have is more valuable than your allegiance to Christ and His Lordship. Amen? These are Jesus' words. This is Jesus' call. This is Jesus teaching us what true saving faith looks like. It's the kind of faith that honors and loves Him supremely above all other things in our life. Amen? How clear could it be? How clear could it be? How about Paul when writing of his own commitment to Christ in Philippians 3? He says this, But whatever things were gained to me, you know how he's going on there in the first few verses of Philippians 3, and he's saying, I'm a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, I'm a Jew of Jews, I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees, right? In regard to the practical obedience to the law, I'm blameless, right? And I'm very zealous, he says, for the traditions of my fathers, right? Paul talking about his great record of blameless righteousness in pursuing Judaism. Right? But then he says this about his commitment to Christ. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, you see what Paul's saying? All my obedience to the law, all my righteousness that I earned and merited before God, all my perfection as a religious man, he says, I counted as loss. For the sake of Christ. Right? Why, Paul? He says, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. You see what Paul is saying? He says, all my religious Judaism is worthless. If I can have Christ. Because you see, Christ is everything. Amen? And all that religious good that Paul did, did him nothing in the sight of God. Until he came to know Christ Jesus as his Lord. And was justified in the sight of God. Right? All his righteousness, as Isaiah says, was as filthy rags. And Paul says, I count it as rubbish compared to the surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Amen? And who, who hasn't been born again? Who, who has been born again who does not know the value of knowing Christ and is not willing to give his life to know Christ because of the joy he gives, the peace he gives, the power he gives over sin? Amen? I don't know about you, but it happened to me 18 years ago. My life has never been the same. It just goes from glory to glory to glory. The love of God is so real in my life. 
The joy of God is so real. Amen? Amen? I don't know about you. I'm ready to go. Take me out. What's the worst you can do to me is kill me. You send me to glory where I already live every day seated at the right hand of God with Christ in heavenly places. Amen? We've already entered into the kingdom of God through faith in Christ. Amen? What have we to lose? We've lost everything to follow Christ. Amen? And when we gained Him, we gained it all. Glorious. Throughout the Bible, God makes it clear that He is the most valuable and supremely worthy being of all. We are continually called to hold Him in higher esteem than all other things. Right? So they come to Jesus and, you know, all these religious guys, you know, these good guys, these good moral guys, they all come to Jesus and they they get Him over there and they say, Okay, Lord, we have a question for you. Right? Matthew 22.36 Teacher! What is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So they come to Jesus and and here they are. They're going to get God's commentary on the Bible. Right? And so they go to God and they say, God, tell us, what's the most important thing you ever said? And so he tells them, to love the Lord your God with everything that is within you. That's the most important thing I ever said. You see, he wants your allegiance. He wants your love. He wants your adoration. He wants the commitment of the deepest part of your heart. So that you love Him, you adore Him, you worship Him, you treasure Him, you value Him above all other things in your life. You understand? This, he says, is the great and foremost commandment. And you know how you show that love to God? You express it in reverent obedience to the people around you. By reaching out and loving them with the kindness and the love of God. You have an open heart, an open home. An open, receptive kind of kindness and love that reaches out to people with the love of God and embraces them. And is willing to sacrifice itself for them. To see them embrace the love of God. Amen? Let me tell you, it's a very loving thing for you to tell people the gospel. It's a very loving thing for you to warn people against the fires of hell. Family, you don't want anybody to go there. Are you with me? You're familiar with the story in Luke 16, right? And, you know, the guy goes, he dies. There's a rich man and Lazarus, right? And the, the, the rich man is ignoring the poor man all his life. And this is the imagery of Jesus' parable. Excuse my paraphrase. <laughs> Right, But then they both die and they find themselves in Hades. Right, And, and, and the, the rich man is over there and he says, he says, Father Abraham, send Lazarus over here with a drop of water for my tongue. Right? This fire, it's consuming me. Right? Sorry, son. <laughs> Don't you remember in your life you had the good things and Lazarus had the bad? Right? And you showed by, by the actions of your life, you really did not have the kind of love for God that, that God called you to have. And so now here you are in this desperate place. And you know what he says? Here's what he says. Father Abraham, send Lazarus to go talk to my brothers and to warn my five brothers that they don't come to this place of torment. You see, when that guy got there, Let me tell you, he didn't want anybody else to go there. Family, you have this knowledge right here in the here and now. It's a very loving thing for you to warn people about the coming wrath of God. 
Because there's only one place to flee. There's only one place to flee, family. It's the cross. There's only one gospel message. There's only one door. It's Jesus. He's the only one with the keys to death and hell. And you have the words of life to lead them to the Savior. Amen? And so, if you will, Jesus says that this great commandment in the law is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and your mind and your soul. Look what he says, the last verse, verse 40 there. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Here's what he means. The whole Bible means this. Love God and love your neighbor. Amen? That's what it's all about, family. That's what our Christianity, that's the form it ought to take. When people come into your life, they ought to see a love for God. They ought to know that you love God. Why? Because the signs are all around. Right? Because His praise shall continually be in your mouth. Amen? Because it's very evident that you love God above everything else in your life. You know? Hey, I'm a football fan. Hey, I like to go hunting and fishing. Hey, I even have a new hobby. What's my new hobby, honey? (laughs) JBL speakers. I love vintage JBL speakers. Okay, but, but let me tell you something. All of that stuff is rubbish compared to the surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's the thing that ought to be bright shining from my life. Right? When people come around, I'm a Christian. I follow Christ. I love you. Let's fellowship. Are you needy? Can I help you? Amen? That's what our life ought to look like, family. Amen? That we love God. This, Jesus says, this depends the whole law and the prophets. That we love God and we love our neighbor. Well, it is this kind of loving Christ and denying our sin that is the very nature of saving faith in and of itself. In fact, this is the nature of sin itself. It is to value ourselves and our own will above God and His will. That's the nature of sin. The nature of sin is, my sin is more important to me than Christ and His Lordship. Right? My own stubborn will is more important than Christ and His Lordship. And every time we sin, that's exactly what we acknowledge. Because we're transgressing the commandment of God. And this is what we're saying to God. God, you know what? My own stubborn will, my own stubborn sin, the things I want, the things I need, the things I'm clinging for, the things I'm striving for, they're more important to me than you are, God. That's what we say. That's what got Satan thrown out of heaven. Because you know what? If, you, if you've read in Isaiah 14, there's five I wills there. Right? He says, I will exalt myself above the Most High. You see? He's calling out about his own will. Okay? This is the nature of sin. It is to uh, value ourselves. Listen, to value ourselves. To love ourselves with all of our heart and our mind and our soul and our strength. We don't have much trouble with that, do we? Why? Because that's our sin nature living within us. And the Spirit is at war with that nature within us. Amen? The pride of self-exaltation is the very first sin portrayed in Satan's rebellion in the angelic conflict. And mankind has followed his devious temptation and because of it plunged all of creation into death and bondage to decay. Therefore, the gospel calls us to willing submission to Christ in order to reverse this great treason against God. In short, the very thing we refuse to do in the garden at the fall, the gospel calls us to do now. Except that now God is going to give us his power to do it. That is, to deny our own self-reliance 
and self-will to embrace Christ as our all-sufficient resource for life and fellowship with God. You see what we got to turn our back on, family? we got to turn our back on our Pharisaical Judaism. You know, Adam had some really good religious works. You know what they were? It's represented in a fig leaf. But it was unsuitable before God to cover the shame of his nakedness. Because without the shedding of blood, there shall be no remission of sins. And so... On the mount of the Lord, it was provided. And God shed some blood, and he made a covering for the shame of their nakedness. You see the Gospels portrayed right there in the garden. Amen? Amen. And what is it, then, that Adam is to deny? His own fig leaf. Because it's insufficient to cover. Rather, the Lord has provided for him. You see, Adam, like me, needs to give up on his own ability to please God and trust Christ. You understand? That's what faith is. And when one does that from the heart, his great desire becomes loving God supremely above all other things. And the last thing I want to do then is sin against God. Are you with me? God's calling for a change in the heart, family. The allegiance of my heart is now to be with him and against my own sin and my own self-will and my own self-righteousness and my own self-reliance. Are you with me? What man could not do in his own strength in the garden, he can now do with the strength that God provides through the regeneration and indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. Like Paul Uh, says in Philippians 4.13, he says, I can do all things. How? Through Him who strengthens me. You see, He does it with the strength of Christ. And what an example of a man who's doing everything he can, right? And, And giving his life and sacrifice to God. He says, I do all of this through Christ who strengthens me. Amen? Or how about in 2 Corinthians 3, there Paul writing, he says, In such confidence we have through Christ toward God, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. You see what Paul's saying? He's saying, I'm not adequate in in and of myself to claim anything of myself, but what? My adequacy, my sufficiency comes from God. It comes from the strength that he provides. Amen? Now, in the scripture, true love for God and Christ is seen and made evident by how we behave. Okay? So here's this thing. What's the great commandment in the law? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Love your neighbor as yourself is the second. Right? And so... This has ramifications upon how we live our life, the things we do, the things we put our hands to, the words we say, the thoughts we think. Okay? These things, when God says, love me, he doesn't just mean go off in your closet somewhere and have some nice thoughts about me. Now, does he? No, he means in every aspect of your life. Right? Love me with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your soul and with all your strength. Right? Give your whole life to me. Lose your life to follow me. Deny yourself. Right? That's the gospel call. In other words, the Bible points out that the kind of behavior that shows itself as loving God, and in contrast, points out a false kind of love, which is not really true love for God, because it lacks obedience. It is clear from Scripture that love for God produces obedience to His commandments. Okay, now here's the key word. The key word is produces. So here's, here's how it is. The fruit, right, the fruit of obedience to God is not the love for God. The love for God produces obedience to God. You see that? And so if you will... 
a true kind of love for God, a true saving faith before God, produces obedience to his commandments. This obedience is the result of regeneration in the life of the believer. In other words, you don't have the power in and of yourself to obey Christ. The only way that you can live an obedient life to Christ is by walking in the Spirit and walking by the power of the Spirit and bearing the fruit of the Spirit. You see, it's not the fruit of Sean, right? It's not the fruit of Luann. It's the fruit of the Spirit of God living within me, right? So what does that mean? Well, it means I've been born again by the Spirit of God. Now the Spirit of God has come to dwell inside me and it produces what? fruit right it produces this fruit the spirit of god living in me produces the fruit so the adequacy is not of myself my sufficiency to produce this fruit is not of myself it is of the spirit of god are you with me and of course we know of that fruit of the spirit right the first is love love joy peace patience kindness goodness Against such things there is no law. Amen? Amen. So, uh, this Jesus points out. Look, obedience is the result of regeneration in the life of the believer. This obedience is produced by a willing submission to the Lordship of Christ. Now, if Jesus isn't Lord, and he's not the master and we're not the slave, right? Then we don't have any concern for obedience. Why should we care if we do what he says or not? You understand that that's what this false gospel preaches? Right? Just believe. Just mentally ascend to the truth that Jesus is the Son of God and He died for sins and you'll be saved. No. I say you're qualified to be a demon. Right? Because this is what Jesus says. He says in John 14, 15, and also in verse 21, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. You see, Jesus is talking about the nature of true saving faith. And I want you to see the contrast. Remember how I told you he's always giving us a contrast between true saving faith and the kind of faith that doesn't save? Right? Well, he says, if you love me. As compared to what? If you don't love me. Right? If you love me, You will obey my commandments. Now look, the love is not the obedience. The love is that allegiance of the heart that loves Christ, which of itself is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. That's why regeneration precedes faith. Okay? You can't do it until he gives it to you. Okay, and we've been down that road before. I'm not going to chase that rabbit. <laughs> but, but the point is, uh, he, look what he says again in verse 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me shall be loved by, by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. You see, he says it two different ways. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Or if you're the one who keeps my commandments, then it, you're the one that loves me. Right? So how do we know we love God? By looking at the actions of our life. By seeing our life surrendered to His Lordship. By seeing practical obedience in our life. Don't try to profess to be a Christian if you're going to go out and live in sin. You're a mere professor. And you're going to go to hell. Could it be any more clear? And and family, that's what we need to tell people. That's what I was trying to tell you. You you're, you're, You're ministering to these people... And they're trying to tell you they're a Christian. They're trying to tell you they know God. They're trying to tell you they love God. But you look at their life and their life is full of sin. Well, hello? We got a problem here. Amen? Would you agree? It's not to say that we don't ever sin again, but we don't live in the continual practice of ongoing sin. Are you with me? This the Bible also makes very clear. But here, speaking about the love of God, this is what uh, John says in 1 John 5, 3. He says, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. You know what that means? It means everybody that loves God, loves to do what God says. That's what it means. They're not a burden. It's not a burden to love God. Right? Well, hey, it may cost us a sacrifice. As a matter of fact, it may cost us our life. But we'd rather give that. Then deny our God. 
Amen? Why? Because he has the allegiance of our heart. We love him more than we love our own life. Right? And it's not a burden, family, to give your life for Christ. It's a joy. Let me tell you, it's a privilege. It's a privilege. 1 John 4.20, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a a liar. He's a mere professor. Right? How come? Well, the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is his commandment that we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Right? Here's that contrast again. What's John saying? Well, if you love, (laughs) we know you love God. If you love your brother, we know you love God. If you hate your brother, we know you don't love God. That's John's reasoning. Right? So in other words, we see somebody's true love for God. We see their true saving faith when they manifest it through love to their brother. Are you with me? That's what the scripture says. Let's talk about that. True conversion or mere professors. True conversion or mere professors. Let's focus for a few minutes on that contrast. And let's examine our own hearts. Let's examine our own life in light of what the scripture says. Okay? And let's ask the question, am I a true believer or am I a mere professor? Let the word of God speak. In the New Testament, the writers are continually laboring to show the nature of true faith and also the nature of false faith. The believer is called to self-examination again and again to test the reality of their faith. This was a theme in the teaching of Jesus when he would present his parables to teach about the nature of the kingdom and of saving faith. Uh, and so here we are in, in some of the parables. Luke chapter 8, verse 14 and following. And this was where he's explaining the parable of the sower. And he says there in verse 14, And the seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard. And as, as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. And the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. You see that? Now, of course, there were four kinds of soils, right? The first one fell along the path, and what happened to it? The birds of the air came and ate it up, right? The devil took the seed from their heart when he explains it, right? And the second kind of seed... Right? It fell along the rocky path, right? And and it sprung up with joy at first, but then when the sun came, the fire of persecution, right? It found itself only as a mere professor and not a true believer, and it withered and died. The third seed fell among the weeds, among the thorns, and it got choked out so that it didn't do what? It didn't bear fruit to maturity, right? Verse 14. But the fourth seed that fell in the good soil, what did it do? Right? It, it, uh, I'm sorry, this seed fell in the good soil. These are the ones who have heard the word in what? In an honest and good heart. That's what the good soil is. The allegiance of a, a good conscience toward God. Amen? And in that honest and good heart, that faith did what? It held it fast and it bared fruit with perseverance. You understand? It bore fruit and it kept bearing fruit and it kept bearing fruit and he who endures to the end shall be saved. You see, true saving faith perseveres till the end. It holds it fast and it bears fruit. Understand? That's the good soil. Now, here's Jesus' parable, family. He's telling of four soils where the sower is sowing the seed, and the seed is the word of God, right? Or the gospel. And as the seed goes out, it falls in all these soils, and only one soil does Jesus commend that soil as good soil. It's the soil that held it fast and bore fruit with perseverance. You see that? All the others, he contrasts with those. Right? 
He contrasts with those. And he points this out. There are those who hear the word of God, he says, but they don't bear fruit to maturity. Now, why is he telling us these things? Right? These he's teaching to his disciples. Right? So that we'll have what? The kind of faith that saves and bears fruit, holding it fast and bearing fruit with perseverance till the end. So that that's the kind of faith we'll be sure to possess. In contrast to those kinds of faith that get choked out by the worries and the riches and the pleasures of life. Think about your life. What are you striving for? Is it pleasures? Is it worries of life? Or is it Christ? Do you seek to live your life to bear fruit for God? with perseverance till the end, <clears throat> excuse me, in sacrifice, denying self-reliance and denying yourself and treasuring Him above everything else in your life. See, that's the nature of true saving faith, family. And it is all over the teaching of Jesus. Are you with me? He's drawing a contrast. How about in Luke 18, verse 22, he says, And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Now, this is the rich young ruler, right? This is the guy who had it all, right? Not only that, he was a good Jew, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. He says, Hey, uh, uh, Master, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, Well, that's easy, right? Obey the commandments, and you will live. Well, Jesus didn't say that was easy. I'm teasing. <laughs> Right? No, Jesus told him like it is. If you have perfect obedience before God, you'll have eternal life. Right? So that immediately canceled him out. <laughs> right? But you remember his confession? Oh, Master, all these have I kept from my youth. You see, I'm a good Jew. Right? You understand? I'm not being anti-Semitic. I'm talking about the confession of this young man. He says, I've done my religion just perfectly. Right? I kept all those commandments of God, every last one. Right? So Jesus answers him. Here it is. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. You understand? This young man held his, hung his head. He hung his head in shame. You know why? Because he loved his riches more than he loved Christ. And he wasn't willing to give up his riches and his pleasures and his things to follow Christ. And this is the thing that Jesus called him to. To give it all up. And so, Jesus taught here, if you love your wealth more than you love me, you're in big trouble. You're outside the kingdom. Are you with me? About Luke 12:16, And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a certain rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? And he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, be merry. But, but, God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. You see, Jesus isn't saying don't be rich. He's not saying don't have lots of money and lots of goods. What he's saying is, if those goods and that money has you, you're in big trouble. You see, Abraham's the father of the faith. 
Man, that guy had more camel and sheep and goats and Wrigley's had gum. Are you with me? Right? But what was the difference between this guy and Abraham? The love, the allegiance of faith in the heart that brought forth a life of worship unto God and he loved God supremely above all other things. Right? And that's the difference, family. You see, Abraham was rich toward God. He wasn't just rich. His possessions didn't own him. He owned them instead. Or should I say, God owned them. And he was holding them for God. Or using them in God's service. Amen? Matthew 13, 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea, gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach and they sat down and they gathered the good fish into containers and the bad they threw away. Now, what are you telling us, Jesus? Well, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. Right? It's like a dragnet. And you go out there and you throw it out in the water and you pull it up on the beach and you do what? Well, you take the good fish and you toss them in the bucket and you take the bad fish and you throw them up on the beach. Right? Well, he goes on. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels shall come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay, what's the, what's the lesson here, Jesus? Well, it's real simple, family. There's two kinds of fish in the world. Good fish and bad fish. Right? Good fish belong to the fishermen. That's what he's out there in the water fishing for. Right? Bad fish. They get gathered up and thrown away. And Jesus says the angels are going to do this at the end of the age. They're going to separate the good fish from the bad fish. You see... The contrast. The contrast of those who have saving faith and those who do not have saving faith. Okay? The master is after the saving faith. Right? There's two kinds of people in the world with two kinds of destinies. You understand? Couldn't be more clear here in the words of Jesus. This theme in the teaching of Jesus shows that true faith produces good works consistent with that faith. In fact, those who do not submit to Christ as Lord or reject him by disobedience are condemned as not possessing salvation. A man's good deeds are proof of his true repentance and a man's evil deeds prove him to be a child of the devil. You understand what we're saying here? What we're saying is, if you're really a Christian, you've really been born again in your heart. In other words, the Spirit of God has come in and transformed you with heavenly power and changed your life. Okay? If that has happened to you, you're going to live like a Christian. You're going to act like a Christian. You're going to speak like a Christian and you're going to think like a Christian doesn't mean you'll never sin again. In fact, you will struggle with sin all the days of your life. But it will be a struggle. You will hate it. You will hate your sin. You will constantly be at war with your sin. You will frequently be depressed because you keep on sinning. Are you with me? But that's a whole different attitude from the kind of person that loves their sin. You understand? The kind of person who's a mere professor and not a true believer, he loves his sin. Right? But a true believer, he hates his sin. He loathes it. He loathes it worse than the pits of hell. Amen? He sees it as a disease and as a cancer he seeks to rid himself of. Amen? This is a theme in the teaching of Jesus, but this is what he's saying. Look, this is a brass tax, Right? Here's Jesus, Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but who? Only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And so Jesus is saying this. If you have the kind of faith that saves, your life is going to show it with good works that live it out and express the reality of it. Right? In other words, you're not going to go on uh, only professing Christ with your words, right? Right? But you're going to profess him with your life, with your deeds, 
Luke 13, 24, he says, Strive to enter by the narrow door. Listen to this. Listen to this. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Have you ever thought about that? Let me, let me just kind of open this up for you. This is Jesus. Jesus is talking about the nature of true saving faith. Here's what he says. Strive. That word in the Greek is agon. You know what it means? Agonize. Right? Strive to enter through the narrow door. You know why? Because he says, many will seek to enter but will not be able. You mean to tell me there's people who are going to want to enter the kingdom of God and can't? You better believe it. Many. Many people. You know why? Because they rejected Christ in their life. And at the door of death, they find themselves at the judgment seat. And the kingdom of heaven is opened up before them. And there will be a time and a place right there where they will say, Lord, open up for us. Let us into your heaven. Let us into your presence. Here Jesus answers. I'm sorry, I lost my place. How'd I do that? (laughs) Oh, at the very bottom, okay. He says, once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, you will begin to stand outside, knock on the door, saying, Lord, open up to us. Then he will answer and say to you, I do not know you or where you are from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and we drank in your presence. You taught in our streets. We were religious. We went to the church. We, we were in your presence. We made a lot of noise about our religion. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. Don't tell me about a second chance. For many will seek to enter, but will not be able. For the Lord himself will say to them, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity, you sinners, you who love sin more than you loved me. Because I don't know you. We didn't have a relationship of love. And it surely wasn't evident in your life. Okay? And that's why the scripture says we'll be judged by our works. You're familiar with what I'm talking about. You look up the passages of judgment in the New Testament, and there it says a man will be judged according to his deeds. Let me tell you why it says that. Because anybody who possesses true saving faith, it is evident by their deeds that they do not deny Christ, but rather instead they love him. In other words, when we look at your life, if you're a true believer, we see clear evidence that you are a true believer and that you love God. And it will be easy to see by your deeds that you love God. Let me give you some deeds that you do that unbelievers never do. I'll give you one. Ready? Open your mouth and sing praises to the living God. Amen. Are you with me? Now, that doesn't mean for sure you're a believer, because there's a lot of mere professors who do that too. Right? But let me tell you, the wicked never even give it a thought. In fact, they're not even thankful. Are you with me? And so, here is a thing that we do. Our deeds, it's evident that we love God. Why? Well, we sing His praises all the time. Right? We live our life. We, should, we, have, we, we, we live our life to love people, to meet their needs. Right? We're constantly speaking of the high praises of God. We're telling of His mighty works to those around us. Right? We can't wait to tell people about Jesus. Why? Because he's the greatest thing we have. Are you with me? Well, we'll knock off there, and we'll take up from there. Let's pray. God, our Father, Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand these contrasts that we see in the Scripture that you would help us to understand the nature of true saving faith, that you would bring clear understanding to our minds about what you have said in your word. I pray that my explanations, God, would bring clarity, that they would help people to see and to grasp and to understand. 
More than this, God, we pray that you would give us a deep longing to possess you, to own you, to hold you, to worship you, to adore you, God. Father, that the great treasure of our life would be you, would be our Lord Jesus, the blessed Holy Spirit. God, that you would consume our thoughts, our desires, our hopes, our dreams. God, I pray that we would love you supremely above all other things. And this, Lord, with all of our heart and our mind and our soul and our strength. And God, may it be evident to others as we love our neighbor as ourselves. Please help us, God. Our sufficiency does not come from us, but only from you. And so we look to you for that power. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.